Uh, you can be seated, and as you're seated, would you turn with me to Ruth chapter 1, the book of Ruth. Joshua judges Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, that's kind of how it goes. So uh, look with me at Ruth. Ruth chapter 1. In Ruth chapter 1, I want to read the first five verses with you. Notice what Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 says. I still hear pages ruffling, and so I'm going to wait a little bit. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Verse 3, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Merry Christmas, right? If you were tonight to go to bed, and before you fell asleep, you were to open up the Gospel of Matthew and start reading the first chapter there, I could probably guess what would happen. You could probably fall asleep much quicker. And here's why. You open up to Matthew chapter 1, and it's a list of names. It's a, it's a genealogy, a genealogy that starts with Abraham and goes all the way through uh, Joseph, the, the earthly father of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And there are names there, and to us they're just names, and most of them are very difficult to pronounce. And so you would probably get bored right away. But if you understood that the Jews in Matthew's day, when they read that genealogy, it meant something to them. These were more than just names. These were stories, stories that built upon one another, stories that, that, that each brought into picture God's providential plan, that each name was a part of his unfolding purpose of saving the people of the world who he not only created but whom he deeply loves. Then perhaps maybe as you open Matthew chapter 1 tonight, you might be able to stay awake a little bit longer. The name still would be a challenge to pronounce, but you would see in those names, you would see the good, the bad, and the ugly. You would see heroes and heroines as well as villains. And if you studied that genealogy closely enough, you would come to this, this name mentioned once in this genealogy, a, a, a woman by the name of Ruth. And you would notice that, that she is in the midst of, of the genealogy of none other than Jesus Christ. She is a Moabitess. And maybe, if you're really thinking, you would have this question. What does a Moabite woman have to do with Messiah coming? How did she end up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas? That's a good question, isn't it? That's why, for the next four Sundays, we're going to look at Ruth's story. 
And we're going to discover how Ruth's story becomes part of Messiah's story. How how Ruth's story is something that you and I, as, as followers of Jesus Christ, or as those who celebrate Christmas, you and I can relate to her story. And so we're going to look at the love of a Redeemer. We're going, to, we're going to consider this Christmas Ruth's story and how it plays in. But as we open up the book, what we're going to discover is several things. We're going to, first of all, recognize that historically this book is known as one of the greatest literary pieces of all time. And it's recognized not only by Christians, but by non-Christians as well. The style of writing brings accolades from all over. The author was truly a master storyteller, a narrator who knew exactly how to capture the attention of both young and old. Because at the end of each four acts, we are left hungering for more. We're left asking the question, what happens next? What's going to happen in this story? And, and we're just longing for it. So, so the style of writing is incredible, but it relates, it relates to Christmas in a, many ways. In the book of Ruth, we are always brought back to Bethlehem. You open it up, starts in Bethlehem, goes to Moab. And then comes back to Bethlehem. Out to the field. Back into Bethlehem. Out to the threshing floor. Back into Bethlehem. Out to the city gate. And back into Bethlehem. What's going on with Bethlehem? I mean, can anything good come out of Bethlehem? And as you open it up and and as you start reading, you recognize that this is a story, maybe even more so a story about God than it is about the three main characters we typically focus on. Ruth, Naomi, and and Boaz become the the, the three characters we look at, but God is always there. He is is in His sovereign will leading and guiding and directing. And those things that we might be looking at as luck or chance or karma... We come to recognize in the, in the book of Ruth, it is none other than God's providence at work. God is the main character, and it's his providence. But here, listen, brothers and sisters, it is by God's providence that a redeemer comes into the picture. A redeemer who is oh so loving, oh so kind, oh so gracious, A redeemer who who provides for two women who are downcast, who are down and out, who, who have little to no hope, and he provides for them security. He rescues them. Does this not sound familiar to us about another redeemer? The redeemer? The one whose birth we celebrate at Christmas? You see, years later, after the writing of Ruth, a child is born. A son is given. And it's this one who we are told will be the Savior of the world. He will save their people, redeem his people from their sins. See, I would submit to us, brothers and sisters, that that the book of Ruth is a Christmas story indeed. And we're going to find in it truths about our Redeemer's love as we consider redemption's love story. Would you pray with me once again? So, Father, as we look at your word today, Lord, there is much that could be said 
And Lord, I I just pray that you would guide us in your truth, that you would help us to apply it, that, Lord, we would see it and we would recognize our Messiah in it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've opened the book of Ruth and as we've read the first five verses, I, I, I want us to see another theme that we're, that we're going to see. And that is the, the, the theme of, of a redeemer, a, a, a one who would come in the dark times and would bring salvation. And as we open the first five book, verses of this book, we recognize that there is this, this woman, this Israelite lady. Her name, Naomi. And what we come to discover in five short verses is that she is in a very dark season. She is in the midst of dark times. And I'd like us to see from these first five verses six signs that Naomi is in a very, very dark, dark situation. And the first is found, the first sign is in verse 1. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. Stop right there. In the days when the judges ruled. Now the readers of this book, who are Jewish in nature, would understand what that meant. See, if you know anything about the Old Testament, and you know anything about the book of Judges, you would come to understand that this was already a dark time in the history of Israel. It was not their highest point. For you see, when the judges ruled, there was no king in Israel. There was no leader who would keep bringing the people of Israel back to God. And therefore, we see this cycle in the book of Judges. The people, because there's no king, they do what is right in their own eyes, and they begin to follow after other gods and fall into sin. God brings judgment upon them because of their sin, and he brings punishment, uh, discipline, if you will. Then God raises up a judge who calls the people back to the one true living God. The people listen. They humbly confess their sins. And then God blesses them and restores them. And then the cycle goes on seven times in the book of Judges. But in that time, there are certainly days when, and, and, and a, a span of time when the nation of Israel is serving the one true God. But at the end of the book, in Judges chapter 21, 25, the whole time is described in this manner. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sign number one, that Naomi is living in dark times. That's when the judges ruled. That was not a good time for the nation of Israel. But secondly, on top of that, going back to Ruth chapter 1, it says, in the days when the judges ruled, notice, there was a famine in the land. The second sign is that there was a famine in the land. Now, if you know anything about the name Bethlehem, you would recognize how ironic this is. Bethlehem, the name means house of bread. But guess what the scripture says? There was no bread in the house of bread. This was famine. And what you need to understand is this famine was far-reaching. It wasn't just in Bethlehem. It wasn't just in Ephrathah. It wasn't just in Judah. It was far and wide. In fact, what we'll discover is Elimelech and his family had to go clear into Moab to get some relief from this famine. We also need to understand the length of the famine. It was at least 10 years long because 10 years after the famine begins, Ruth comes back in 
to Bethlehem, or excuse me, Naomi comes back in to Bethlehem. This was a great famine. It wasn't just a small little thing that, that caused a little bit of hardship. This was a great famine. Sign number two. Sign number three. In verse 2, it says, The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. This man moved his family into Moab. Sign number three, this is a dark, desperate time. You need to understand, Moab was a foreign country. They spoke a different language. They had a completely different culture. In fact, the Moabites are known to be a godless, sinful people. They are the ones that would often drag Israelite, the Israelites away from the one true living God. And now here is Elimelech and his family going into this foreign land. They move. We're not sure that... The, the author of Ruth does not tell us whether Elimelech had arranged a, a job ahead of time. Probably not. Probably he was going into Moab uncertain of what the future was even in this far off land. They had to leave their family. They leave, had to leave the comfort of home. And on top of that, they left the place of worship. Jerusalem. The temple was there. It's where they would gather to worship the one true living God. His Shekinah glory dwelt in that temple. The, the, the celebration feasts were there. Everything they knew to worship God was there. And they leave it all behind and they go into this foreign land. Sign number three. But notice sign number four, and this is horrible. Verse three. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. I don't think we have to say much there, do we? Sign number four of darkness. Her husband in a foreign land now leaves her in death. Over this whole shadowy time in her life, Naomi watches as her husband leaves her there alone in a foreign land. You see, she not only is walking through these shadowy times, but now she's going through the valley of the shadow of death as well. Her husband now is gone. But there is a little glimmer of hope because verse 3 goes on, she was left there with her two sons. And in verse 4, these two sons took Moabite wives, the name of one Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. Ha! There's a little bit of hope. Naomi has a glimmer of hope. I still have my sons. And now they have taken wives for themselves. And maybe if I'm lucky, I'll get grandkids. Do you have grandkids? I do. They're the best. It is true. I, I was told early on that, that you're going to find that grandkids are way better than kids. And you'll start wishing you had had grandkids first. And it's true. And here is Naomi. She has this tiny little glimmer. Maybe I'm going to get grandkids after all out of this thing. But notice what it says. But both Malon and Chilion also died there. They also died there. Now, the storyteller has given us a, a, a hint at what was going to happen. I mean, their names are Malon and Chilion. If you know anything about those names, you recognize Malon means sickness Chilion means pining or dying. That's like naming your kids, you know, heart disease and, and, and leukemia. I mean, what do you expect from names like that? But they die there in Moab as well. And the sad, sad part is their wives remain barren. Even after 10 years, they're barren. There's no kids. 
Sign number five, she loses her sons as well. But the sixth sign is this, she is left without her two sons and her husband. She is left alone. She has no heirs. She has nobody to take care of her. You need to understand in those days, there were no retirement. There was no social security. If you were a widow in that day and you had no family, there was no source of income for you. These are dark, dark days for Naomi. And that is what we're confronted with as we open the book of Ruth. She is in dark times. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe it's been through the death of a loved one. Maybe it's a death of a child or the death of a spouse. Maybe it's, it's disease. Maybe the doctor has just given you a prognosis and, and it's bleak. It's not good. Maybe it's financial ruin. Maybe you've gone through financial ruin and, and you remember the season of that and, and how that was so dark and bleak. Maybe it's just relational issues going on in your life or that have gone on in your life and it seems like there's no answer. You can't come to an agreement and and there's darkness there. And the truth is, when we go through dark times, it it takes its toll on us, doesn't it? I I mean, it has an effect on us. It, It affects our lives. Well, the same is true of Naomi. She is in the midst of this dark time. We've looked at it, six signs that she's in darkness. But now she, she gets this idea. She's going to go back into Bethlehem. Her husband has died. Her sons have died. And, and, and she's left with, with this option. I, I got to go back to Bethlehem. But what's amazing is the, the storyteller does not give us an understanding that she leaves Moab because of the situation there. Rather, she leaves Moab because of what the Lord is doing back in Bethlehem. Look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Guess what? There's bread back in the house of bread. The Lord has visited his people back there. And so she sets off, and she sets off with her two daughters-in-law. Interestingly enough, they are foreign women. They are Moabites. But this was the proper thing to do, to, 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 for them to follow her. And so they set off together to go back into Bethlehem. God had visited Bethlehem. The house of bread now has bread once again. And so she takes off and she goes. And as they're walking, she begins talking. There's a set of three dialogues here. And in the course of these three dialogues, we come to understand that the darkness has taken its toll on Naomi. What we're going to discover is it has affected Naomi. Naomi went out with much rejoicing. She went out with, with, with great plans, great hopes, great dreams. She was a woman who was known to be Naomi, which means pleasant. But the darkness has had a, an effect on her. And so as they are walking, she's walking back to Bethlehem with her, with her two daughters-in-law. All of a sudden, she breaks the silence, and she begins to speak, verse 7. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah, verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters, Go! return each of you to her mother's house. Now what you need to understand is this first dialogue brought on by Naomi is a dialogue of firm tenderness. Notice the two commands. Go, return. 
These are two imperatives. She is being as firm as she can. She is walking along and she realizes while it might be proper for these two ladies to go with her back into Bethlehem, it certainly would not be good for them. They are foreign women. They are Moabitesses. And they are ones who are the enemies of Israel. What is there for them back in Israel? What is there for them back in Bethlehem? How are they going to survive? See, at best, they might become a concubine and they'll survive. But at worst, they would become a poor beggar on the street. There was nothing for them there. So she tells them in great firmness, go, return to your mother's house. But it's a tender firmness because what follows are two kind of prayers for, for them. She says, go return to your mother's house. In verse 8, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. And we're going, wait. Their husbands died. What is she talking about? Well, her second prayer is that they would become remarried. That's why she says, go return to the house of, did you notice this? To the house of your mother? No, wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. A widow would typically be told to return to the house of her father. Why? Because the father is the one that could provide for her as a widow. He was the one that would take care of her, bring her security, bring her provision. But, but Naomi's prayer is that they would return to the house of their mother. Oh, here's why. More literally, it means that you would return to your mother's bedroom. Doesn't that clear it up for you? No? Okay, let me give you another little clue. It was in the mother's bedroom that marriages were arranged. Now it makes sense. Naomi is praying that they would return to their homeland, that they would go into their mother's bedroom and have a marriage arranged right there for them so that they could find rest, so that they could find peace, because she knew it wasn't going to happen in Bethlehem. But notice the first prayer that she prays. Verse 8. May the Lord deal kindly with you. You know that word kindly there is chesed? Two weeks ago we talked about this word when we looked at Psalm 139. Chesed. I got a little too much phlegm in that one. You don't want to do it as bad. But it is the human sound. Chesed. And, and, and what it really means is God's loving kindness. It is strong, steadfast love. We looked at it two weeks ago. But here's what Naomi is praying. She is praying that, the, that, that God would shine and shower his chesed, his, his steadfast loving kindness upon them just as they have been kind to her, her husband and her dead sons. Here's the clue. When we can, are, are, are hearing about a Redeemer on in, later on in this book, we're going to recognize His chesed toward Ruth and toward Naomi. This is a key word. It's a key theme in this book. As I would submit to you, it is a key theme throughout the whole Old Testament. This word is one of the most important words you and I could ever learn because it speaks of our Father's steadfast, faithful, undying, unchanging love toward His people. Chesed. May the Lord be chesed towards you. 
This is a, a key theme that we're going to pick up later on, but right now I've got to keep going, okay? I've got so much here to talk about. It's so good. These are good. You don't mind staying until 2, do you? I forgot to ask you at that. I assumed you didn't mind. <laughs> People are looking at their watch. Okay, anyway, nonetheless, so dialogue number one, she is encouraging them to go back. She's telling them to turn back. It's firm tenderness. She, she's praying that, they would, that things would go well for them. She's wanting them to find husbands. She's wishing the best for them. She's telling them to leave. Now it's up to Orpah and Ruth. What decision will they make? Well, verse 10 tells us. And they said to her, No, we will not return, but we will go with you to your people. We will not return. We will not return. We will stay with you. We will not go back. So now... Naomi's second dialogue becomes a little more sarcastic. In fact, you could say she uses bitter sarcasm. Because now Naomi says this, verse 11. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I too, I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even, a, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Now she's very sarcastic. And, and this is kind of a verbal slap in the face. She's trying to wake them up to reality. She's re- helping them to recognize uh, what is referred to as the Leverite marriage, which means if a man dies, his brother, and, and he doesn't have any heirs, his brother is to marry his, his wife and, and provide for her and provide heirs for her so that she can be taken care of. And, and Naomi is saying, listen, I'm an old lady. Uh, there's, there's, there's no way I am going to bear children. And even if, even if by some fluke I were to marry and, and get pregnant tonight, and had twins, two boys, that you could marry, would you really wait for them until they are of marrying age? And then she answers her own question, No! May it never be. She uses this bitter sarcasm, but note where the bitterness comes in. Note what she says in verse, uh, the middle part of verse uh, uh, 13. She says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. It is bitter. And not just a little bitter. It is exceedingly bitter. And notice what she says, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Does that seem a little sacrilegious to you? Does that seem like, a, like she's going to get struck by lightning, as we would say? Does that make you want to kind of scurry away from her because you don't know what God's going to do for saying that? She's blaming God for this. And I say, she's right. See, here's what we do, brothers and sisters, and I want to be careful here. We are quick to assign God's sovereignty over those good things that happen to us. But when bad things happen, we assign that to some other things, such as Satan. We are not dualists, brothers and sisters. We do not believe Satan has the same power that God has. Only God is omnipotent. Only God is omniscient. Only God is all-knowing. He is the one who is able to control and have sovereignty over everything, not Satan. But what do we do? An earthquake happens and an abortion clinic crumbles and we go, see, God got him. 
Fire takes place and a church burned down and we go, oh, Satan, he's against us. See, we are dualists when we say those things. Either God is sovereign always or he is not. Ruth is, or Naomi is going, I am bitter because the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And either she is absolutely in sin in saying that, or, brothers and sisters, she is absolutely right in saying that. It is God's providential hand at work here. She assigns it to God, and I would submit to you she's not wrong. She's absolutely right. But there's bitterness in her heart that's building. We see that. Bitterness. It affects her relationship with her daughters-in-law. And so what happens is Orpah then kisses her and leaves. Now the Scripture does not say Orpah leaves. The Scripture says Orpah kisses her. But to kiss her was a, a statement of farewell. And by the way, did you know that the name Orpah means back of the neck? Which is what Naomi and Ruth saw as Orpah turned away to go back to Moab. But see, Ruth means friend or companion. And so Ruth now makes this incredible, incredible statement. Next to Psalm 23, what Ruth says here is is a favorite of many people. It is used in weddings all over the place, even though it's not here spoken between a husband and a wife. It's spoken between, interestingly enough, a a daughter-in-law and her mother-in-law. Did you catch that, ladies? Your mother-in-law. So notice what, what happens now. So, so Naomi sees that Orpah left, but Ruth, Ruth clung to her. So verse 15, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after her. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. I would submit to you, beloved, that this is the greatest statement of conversion that we have in the Old Testament. Ruth is not just devoting herself to Naomi. No, she says, your God my God. Your God, the one true living God, my God. I forsake all those other things that we called God back in Moab, and I have made a decision. I have made a commitment. I am going to follow your God. He's going to be my God so that your people are my people. I'm going with you. I made this decision. I'm devoted. I am loyal. Not just to you, Naomi, Ruth is saying, but I am loyal. I am devoted to your God. I don't know what's going to happen to me in Bethlehem. I may die in Bethlehem, but I don't care. Your God is my God. And what does Jesus say to us? Count the cost before you become a follower of Jesus Christ. See, what's amazing is Ruth has counted the cost. And Ruth says... I'm following your God. I'm devoted to you, Naomi. But your God is my God. See, and you and I, we try to make evangelism so easy. Jesus never does. Jesus says, count the cost. Jesus says, if other things come in the way of me, you're not worthy of me. Jesus says, you need to be willing to forsake all things for me. But what do we do? Oh, he loves you. And he does. 
Oh, he, he, just say this simple prayer. Brothers and sisters, here is Ruth's statement of faith. This is her conversion moment. She has made a de- devotion, a decision here of devotion to Naomi, but more importantly to God. And he's going to reward her for it. He's going to reward her, but you have to come back next week for us to, to, to continue finding this out. But, but nonetheless, I want you to see what has happened in Naomi's life in this darkness. It, is, it has had a, an effect on her relationship with her daughters-in-law. But now as she gets back into Beth... Oh, by the way, verse 18, I, I almost forgot to mention. It says, And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, <laughs> listen to these words, she said no more. Ladies... You want to know how to get your mother-in-law to stop talking? Just proclaim her devotion to her. She won't know what to say after that, right? That's what happened to Naomi. She didn't know what to say. She stopped talking. Lesson learned. But then in verse 19, these two women now, and I want you to see, not only does this darkness have an effect on, uh, on Naomi's relationship with her daughters-in-law, but it has an effect on her character. And first notice, Bitterness is written all over Naomi's face. Because we get to verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. Now, stop and and think for a moment. That word stirred is, is a word that means great rejoicing, great celebration. It is used when the when the Ark of the Covenant was brought back into the camp of Israel. It was also used, that that same statement is used when King Solomon is anointed king. It's a stirring, it's a celebration. And and, and here's people in Bethlehem, they remember Naomi. She left, she was pleasant, she was sweet. She had dreams in front of her. She had hopes, she had a husband, she had two boys. Even though they were sick and dying, she still had two boys. And and, and then she left, and, and now she's coming back, and the whole town is a stir. It's a stir. But I think part of the stir is this. Part of that stir was there. They're going, is this Naomi? Is this the same Naomi? She, she looks much different. See, the women folk of the town get together and they're going, is, is this Naomi? She doesn't look the same. Oh, she was so pleasant. She was so joyful. She was so happy. She she was looking forward to the future. And now she comes back and bitterness is written all over her face. You know people like that? They might scowl all the time. They, They just look like they're bitter. They don't laugh. They don't smile. They come in and, and you almost are, are scared to talk to them because you don't know what's going to come out of their mouth. They just look bitter. Naomi looks bitter. It's written all over her face. And people are stirred by that. But then as they start asking this question, is that Naomi? Is that Naomi? Naomi overhears it. And it becomes a mockery to her because Naomi means pleasant. Naomi means sweet. But she no longer feels that. She no longer feels that. Every time they use the name Naomi, it is this, this, this knife in the back. It continues to hurt because she does not feel that anymore. Oh yeah, she once had dreams, hopes, wishes, desires. She once was, was, was expectant of the Lord to do mighty things in her heart and life. But look at what he's done to her now. How could she be pleasant? She was bitter. And so the bitterness is not only seen in her face, but the bitterness is heard in her talk. 
Notice finally she said to them, verse 20, Do not call me Naomi. Do not call me pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the, here it is again. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Do you hear the bitterness? And it might come out as sarcasm today. It might come out as, as just plain rudeness today. It might come out as, as the doom and gloom, Eeyore syndrome in people today. But you've seen it, haven't you? If it's not written on their face, you've heard it in their talk. Maybe today, that's you. Maybe today you're sitting here realizing there's bitterness on my face. And when I speak, it's, it's just full of bitterness. And all I do is, is put down people. And all I do is see the negative side of things. And all I do is, is complain. And sometimes I'm just plain rude. See, dark times have an effect. They affected Naomi. But, but listen, beloved. As we close this final verse in this first chapter in Ruth, what we see is in the midst of this darkness that has left Naomi bitter, there is this ray of light shining. There is this, there is this, this light that starts to break through that darkness. And I want you to see three lights, three, three, three ways this light is shining. Are you still with me? I still have a little bit of time left, okay? So don't look at your clocks. I have a little bit of time left. So let's consider three ways that this light now starts to shine. Number one, notice verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. There's a ray of light. There it is. See, Naomi has found a faithful daughter. A daughter who has devoted herself to her. Yes, first and foremost to her God, but also to her. And she returns to Bethlehem, not empty-handed, not just, not, not just empty-handed because she's without husband and without sons. She returns to Bethlehem with a faithful daughter-in-law. By the way, do you ever wonder what Ruth thought when just a few verses up, Naomi tells them, stop calling me Naomi. I went out full and the Lord has brought me back empty? I mean, here's Ruth, her faithful daughter-in-law who is beside her. What do you think Ruth thought when Naomi said, I've come back empty? What am I, chopped liver, right? See, she comes back with Ruth. Ruth is her, her, her faithful daughter-in-law and the ray of light begins to shine. But notice also what this incredible writer does. He gives us just this little tiny glimpse. Because at the end of verse 22, it says, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. How different from verse 1. Verse 1, the judges ruled, and there was no food in the house of bread. But now they come back into Bethlehem. Not only does she have a faithful daughter through whom God is going to do incredible things in her life, but she comes back at barley harvest. Is this a coincidence? Is this by chance? I don't know why I got into that <laughs> voice, but is this something that is surprising? 
See, the storyteller wants us to hear this because this is what makes us go, oh, it's barley harvest. What's going to happen next? But aside from that, I'm going to jump ahead, brothers and sisters, if you will allow me to. And I want you to see in verse 1, and here's where I really want to get this morning. Verse 1 of chapter 2, it says this, almost as an interruption in this story. It just is almost this side note. But as we will see, this is the most important side note in the whole book. Notice what it says. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Wait, what does Boaz have to do with anything? In verse 1 of chapter 2, we realize he's, he, he's probably a, a, a man of a reputation. He owns property. He's probably a, a wealthy man there. He's probably an older, well-respected man. Oh, and he's a relative of Naomi. Does this come into play? You see, what we come to understand, brothers and sisters, is this. And let me, let me, let me bring this to a close There is a Redeemer in Bethlehem. There is a Redeemer in Bethlehem. Verse 1 leaves us wanting to know more. What's going to happen with Boaz? He is this Redeemer in Bethlehem. They have come back not knowing what their future holds. They've come back in darkness. They've come back bitter. They've come back uncertain. They have come back not sure whether they are going to even exist and live in Bethlehem. But then we hear this. There's a Redeemer in Bethlehem. There's a Redeemer in Bethlehem. What is God trying to say here? He's trying to tell us this truth that in the darkest of times, the hope of God's redeeming light shines. You might be going through the darkest of times right now, but you need to understand there's a Redeemer in Bethlehem. And His redeeming love is toward you no matter how dark your time seems to be. There's a Redeemer in Bethlehem. There's a Redeemer in Bethlehem. You see, the prophet Isaiah prophesying about that day when Jesus Christ would be born, he says this in Isaiah 9, verse 6, or 2, rather. He says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then in verse 6, we hear these words, familiar words, especially this time of year. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and so on. Here's the bottom line, brothers and sisters. We live in a world full of darkness and sin, don't we? All you have to do is watch the news for two minutes and it is overly apparent how dark and sinful this world is. All you have to do is read the newspaper. All you have to do is walk on the streets and you will realize how dark and sinful these days are. But there's a Redeemer in Bethlehem. And you may be going through times right now where it seems dark. You don't know where to turn. You don't know what's happening next. There's a Redeemer in Bethlehem. A child has been born. A son has been given. And as the angel says 
to Matthew in Matthew chapter 1. You will call him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. He will redeem his people from their sins. So much that Zechariah in Luke's gospel chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. There's a redeemer in Bethlehem. In times of darkness, the hope of redeeming light shines. Whatever you're going through, whatever you are experiencing in your life, let the hope of God's redeeming light shine in your hearts today. As we approach this Christmas season, that's what I hope we will continue to do as we focus on the love of our Redeemer. As we focus on redemption's love story, I want us to realize all over again how loved we are because of that very first Christmas. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning thanking you so much for your love. Thank you for this incredible story that we have here in in the book of Ruth. Thank you, Father, for the fact that you have, have not only spoken words of love, but you sent your only Son to come to this earth on that first Christmas morn. Thank you that he came to be, among many other things, a redeemer, somebody who would, who would purchase salvation for us by his own death on the cross, who would provide for us forgiveness of sin once and for all, who would, who would, by our faith and trust in Him, keep us from the darkness of hell. So, Lord, we give You thanks and praise for Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Father, I just pray for those in this place who maybe are going through struggles right now, hard situations, and this Christmas season seems less than happy. I pray for them that, Father, in the midst of their darkness, they would let the light of Your redeeming love toward them shine. And that they would hold on to that and rejoice in that. For those in this place, Lord God, who have never put their trust in Jesus, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. That you, my friend, today would just simply invite Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord. But Father, we just ask that you would help us to take this news to this world that is full of sin and full of darkness. Help us to shine the light of your redeeming love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.